So let's open with prayer. Um, this prayer today, uh, it's a it's a reworking of uh, of a prayer by Thomas Cramner. Uh, Thomas Cramner was the uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, before it, he he was Catholic. He wasn't Anglican. So it was before Henry VIII and the 1500s and all of that fun stuff. Uh, so it, it's a reworking of an old prayer. It's for the baptism of our Lord, which is where we are in our uh, liturgical church year. So today we remember that you know Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist. And this prayer has some of that, that theme to it. Eternal Father, you have given us your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and revealed him to us at his baptism in the Jordan River. Grant that we who have been born again of water and the Holy Spirit and made your children by your adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior, who is alive with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. So um, just getting started, um, I've been kind of reflecting on the last uh, couple of sessions, uh, and uh, one of the things that strikes me is when we study the Bible, there are kind of two um, dangers, you know, when we when we study things. Um, one is that uh, we miss the forest for the trees, and the other is that we miss the trees for the forest. Um, and uh, uh, I'm I'm a little bit worried uh, that. It, the way that I go through this is uh, a, a little too much missing the the forest for the trees. I mean, we've, we're focusing in really closely on, you know, verses and words and, and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that as I was studying for this uh, particular um, uh, session that was really kind of impressed on me is this is a letter that has literary things that are happening through it. And uh, the point that we're at in the letter is actually kind of a hinge. And, and there, the, there are things that go back to things that came before. There are things that are pointing ahead to what's coming up. And, um, and, and you know, I was struck by the, the fact that the people who heard this letter early on, they didn't have a paper copy of it. You know, somebody would get up and they would read it and they would listen to it together. You know, so some of the stuff that we're doing where I'm like, well, then use this word and so on and so forth. Previous generations of Christians wouldn't wouldn't have had the, the ability really to do that. This is a, eh, I, I mean, it's old, but it's not all the way back to the beginning old uh, way of studying. Um, and so... I guess I say this just to really in, encourage you to, you know, take some time, maybe uh, read through the book of Romans, read through the chapters, see see the bigger movements too, and I will, I'll try to pull some of that out. Um, in, in fact, one of the things that uh, um, kind of grabbed me when I was studying for this one through the commentary um, is that when you look at Romans 8, Romans 8 starts out with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But by the end of chapter 8, it's going to be, uh, th there's no separation from the love of Christ. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of an interesting movement from no condemnation to no separation. You know, and it'll be interesting to see how Paul moves through this part of his letter 
to, to do that. Um, and we will not get to that today. Um, so Romans 8, 1 through 4, uh, this actually serves as a literary hinge. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, a literary hinge takes themes from the previous part of the letter and it starts to mix it with things that are coming up in the letter. Um, it is something that um, Paul has done a couple of different times through the letter as he's you know, tried to move things forward. Um, and, uh, uh, and I hadn't noticed it. Um, and when I was reading about this one, you know, th this, is, this is the hinge in the letter. You know, it really goes from talking about um, the justification that comes by faith through, you know, comes by grace through faith and then starts working into what does this mean in terms of our life and how we relate to one another uh, in Christ. So um, look, look for these words uh, as we go through here, law, sin, spirit, and flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the, the stuff about law and the sin, um, it, you know, that's, that's very much looking back to what he had just written. Um, and then the stuff about spirit and flesh, that's going to push us forward into, uh, into chapter 8. So um, we talked about verses 1 and 2, but verse 3, uh, which says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Uh, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I mentioned this with uh, verse 1, that the, the first word is actually nothing condemns us. Um, it, part of this is Greek syntax, but part of it is also, I think, uh, emphasis. And I think that uh, while the way that this is translated is, it's a good translation, it's good English, um, it changes the emphasis a little bit. Um, it, it changes the, the original and uh, so one of the ways you could translate this is for the powerlessness of the law in that it was weakened by the flesh, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, etc. Notice that it starts with this idea of the powerlessness of the law. The same way that verse one starts with the idea of there's nothing that condemns. This one brings your focus immediately to the law is powerless. Um, and I think that there's an interesting connection here all the way back to the beginning of the letter. Um, when Paul speaks of the law's power, powerlessness, the Greek word for that is adunaton. Catch that, duna, uh, as, as part of the, the word. But think all the way back to Romans 1, verse 16, where Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power 
of God for salvation. The dunamis, that duna, uh, they're the they're same root word in, in both of them. And what we see here is kind of an important principle that the law is powerless in order to save us, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So the power that transforms sinners is the gospel. The law is ineffective at this work. That's really, really a pretty good summary of the first seven chapters of the book. You know, all, all these things that we try to do to make ourselves righteous according to the law, they don't work. What does make us righteous in God's presence is the gospel. So what he's talking about here is that which makes us alive as opposed to that which kills us. You know, he's talked about how the gospel is that which gives us life. It raises us from the dead. We're baptized into Christ, that we're baptized into his resurrection. We walk in newness of life in Romans chapter 6. But he's really put a heavy emphasis on the fact that the law kills, that the law condemns. And this is, you know, a big part of, I think, his teaching uh, throughout his letters. Uh, in, in Galatians chapter 3, he talks about this. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, until God's people, uh, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So he's saying basically that the law was put in place in order to drive people not to their works, but to the one who delivers a promise. He says, now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But notice, if it could. Just like we read in, in verse 3, the law is powerless. It's not able to do this work of giving life. But the scripture impre imprisoned everybody under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. The gospel is the bit that actually does the work. Is this making sense? So is it like, so the law, is this like provokes or increases uh, the sin, whereas yes. the gospel saves us by the scriptures. Right. And keeps saves us, us the, by the promise. Uh, by the promise. And um, uh, through the gospel, we, can, we learn about like faith, where Jesus Christ, we learn about faith, we learn about Jesus Christ, and especially we get to know that the Lord has sent Jesus Christ to us so that uh, we can have like eternal life. And it isn't even just that we learn, but the gospel actually delivers mm -hmm. what, what, it, what it says. Yeah. So it's not just a matter of, you know, oh, I learned this. It, it, it's actually doing work in us. Um, I remember reading uh, a uh, uh, professor, um, mm, well, you probably don't know his name anyhow. Um, okay. But... Uh, uh, he, he basically said that a lot of times when we look at the gospel, uh, it, it's kind of like people studying uh, an explosion. 
and they, they look at it and they're like, well, this is over here now and this is here and here's the crater and so on and so forth. But the gospel is actually an active uh, happening. It's, it's an active occurrence that you know, we're not trying to just learn about what happened when you know, Jesus died and you know, these things took place. These things continue to, to work in our lives. So it's not just that you know, your, you know, the sins of the world were forgiven when Christ died. That sin that you just did, that one, is forgiven. And this is at work in your life today. You know, the, it's like the explosion is still going off. And the, the power is still at work uh, in us and in the world. Is it, you with me? Am I? All right. So what we've seen so far in Romans is that the law is active in three ways. One is that it provokes and increases sin. Uh, it, it, it takes a sinner captive to death and it reveals the knowledge and truth of God's will. Not that we're capable of doing it. It increases sin or increases our awareness of sin? What, what Paul says is that it increases sin. Now, so how, how do we understand that? Um, I think that what, it, what that comes down to is that in our sinful nature, we're always rebelling against God's will. And so when we hear, you know, when our sinful nature hears, thou shalt not, uh, it's like the, uh, the petulant child that says, want to bet? You know, so being told what not to do yes. encourages us to not do that because of our sinful nature. Or to do it. Right, right. And so the, the law's work, in a, in a sense, is uh, to convict us and to condemn us um, in our sin. While, it, you know, if we were completely righteous, which in Christ we are, it therefore then reveals uh, the knowledge and truth of God's will. It's kind of that um, three functions of the law thing. That, you know, this is definitely that, that first and second part that it acts as that curb and as that mirror that condemns. Yeah, Sam? I was going to say, if we were righteous, then we wouldn't need eternal life, basically. Right. If, if we were righteous in, our, in and of ourselves. And this is the good news of what Jesus has done for us, is that, and, and this is what this is getting at, is that he came and he was righteous for us, so when we stand before God, it's in Jesus' righteousness. And he, in a sense, takes our sin upon himself so that when God looks at us, he says, oh, Sam's righteous. But it's Jesus' righteousness. As far as you know, you're concerned, it's the, the righteousness that he gave you. So the, the passage says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Ooh, what was that? Um, he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Um, there are a couple other passages that speak to this. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, um, Jesus is described as the great high priest. 
And it says that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not had a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. Um, the writer to Hebrews emphasizes this idea that Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh in order to sympathize with our weakness, in order to um, bear with us, to know what that temptation is like. Uh, he probably knows temptation even more keenly than we do um, because we give up pretty quickly. Um, if you, you ever... Um, you ever wrestle when you were a kid? You know, no. You know, I, I, you know. Well, I wrestled a lot of time. Yeah. When I was a kid. Okay. But that just, just, that's just for fun. Just for fun. So, yeah. so somebody, um, you know, somebody pins you, and like when you were little, when when my brothers were little, I could do the whole small package thing really easy. They'd kick my butt so bad now. <laughs> you know, because they're they're stronger, right? They can resist better. You know, so I think about that with the temptation thing. Jesus can resist better, which means that probably more pressure was placed on him than we ever experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that reminds us that Jesus um, came in the likeness of sinful flesh, um, John 1 verse 14 uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the, the one and only from the Father. You know, there's just very much this sense of, of um, Jesus coming and, and being part of us. But sometimes people have read this and they've said, well, that means that Jesus was sinful. Well, no, it's not actually what that means. Um, there's a, a, a heresy uh, in the early church called docetism. Uh, and docetism believed that, uh, that this means that Jesus uh, is not only, that Jesus is only like a human. You know, he comes in the likeness. He just looks like he is. You know, he, he's not actually. Um, but that's not what the scripture teaches. You know, John 1, the word became flesh. You know, no, he, he really came and, and was human. He didn't just look like one. Right. Yeah, and he comes, but he comes in the likeness, and you can see where somebody would say, "Oh, he's just like us. He's not actually one of us." Um, no, that's that's not the the full testimony of the scriptures. Um, and the opposite error uh, would be to ignore this likeness and and just assert that this means that Jesus' flesh in the incarnation was sinful. And people have taught that too, that because Jesus was born into humanity, that he must have been a sinner. So, you know, you kind of fall off the horse on both sides. Um, one of the commentators wrote this about this. He says, uh, Paul is walking a fine line here. On the one hand, he wants to insist that Christ fully entered into the human condition, became enfleshed, incarnus, and as such exposed himself to the power of sin. On the other hand, he must avoid suggesting that Christ so participated in this realm that he became imprisoned in the flesh 
and became thus so subject to sin that he would be personally guilty of it. So when he says that he comes in the likeness of sinful man, um, he, he's saying that, you know, no, he is, he is one of us, um, but he's without the sin. That's where the, the whole likeness thing is. Um, and, uh, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a passage that kind of speaks to this idea when it, Paul writes, um, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. Um, the thing that, that comes to mind to me is um, he was not the first one human to be sinless because Adam and Eve were originally sinless right? too. Yeah. Right. So you certainly can have a sinless human being. Yep. Yeah, and uh, um, in fact, that's p part of Paul's letter. He comes as the second Adam, right? Um, and uh, it, you know, th this idea that he comes completely as one of us, uh, it has a very specific purpose. He comes, he knows no sin, but he comes to be sin for us. In other words, not that he sins, but he takes our sin upon himself and he so identifies that with himself that it becomes his own leaving us with his righteousness and his forgiveness. And one more thing. Yeah, please, Sam. I think this is right. Adam sinned first, right? Oh, I think that that would be hard to prove one way or the other. Okay. So Eve is tempted. Yeah. Uh, and we know that she ate the fruit, right? Yeah. But Adam was standing there the whole time, we learn, mm -hmm. and didn't do anything to help her. So it, I think it would be hard, to, like on a timeline, to say that's the, you know, one who did it first. But uh, mm -hmm. they they both they both fell right then, didn't they? Mm -hmm. They kind of did it together. What's that? They, they did it together. Together, yeah, yeah. That's true. So he comes in the likeness of flesh, of sinful flesh, and for sin. That's what the, the English Standard Version translates this as. Um, I learned that that phrase for sin is actually a Hebraism. It, it, by that I mean it's a Hebrew phrase that's expressed in Greek. Um, it, it would be like, you know, when, when you're, you're talking about something and you throw in a little Spanish lingo, you know, to, you know, spice up your 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 phraseology this is kind of what's happening here i think because in the old testament so the old testament was written in hebrew and it was translated into greek there's a greek translation it's called the septuagint okay this phrase in hebrew for sin is often translated uh in in this context of of a sin offering. And, and so, um, when it says that, you know, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, it means that he came to be the sacrifice to atone for our sin. So, you, you could translate it like this. 
God, after sending his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin, and as a sin offering, condemned sin in the flesh. So this is, this is the idea um, in, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, um, that uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth the son to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law. That you know, his, the purpose of his humanity is to be that redeemer, to be that sacrifice that atones for sin. Um, was it last week or the week before? Uh, the word propitiation was in two different parts of the... I love that word propitiation, but it, it, I mean, that's a vocabulary word. Um, that, that idea that Jesus is this blood sacrifice that, that atones for our sins. That's a hugely important concept. Um, I, I wish we had a little better way of saying it than propitiation sometimes, though. Um, but I also kind of think that sometimes you've got to know the jargon. You know, do you have phrases that you use in your family that, you know, other people, they, they, if they heard it, they might not necessarily even get it? I, I think that the, this propitiation thing, uh, justification, sanctification, uh, I think that some of this is, is that kind of jargon language that, you know, yeah, we have, to, we have to help people who don't know the language to understand it. But at the same time, I think, you know, you can't jettison it. You can't just throw it away. So, you know, it, it's like the, those, those things that we say in our, our own family that we get, um, even if others don't, and then maybe we need to, to do a good job of helping people to get it. This is like our everyday challenge to overcome sin. Yeah. And and um, as uh, as like by nature we are sinful because of because of flesh. Right. And uh, but God also provided us a lot of resources by which we can overcome sin. For example, like read the Bible, read the scriptures. And nowadays, in advanced, we can also use like the advanced technology to do that. For example, in your cell phone, you can use like the Bible app yep. to overcome sin. So, like, have a cup of coffee. Be one yeah, because because it, it, it connects you to the Word, and the Word is one of those uh, places where God promises to meet us and where He works in our lives. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, he starts out this section. He says. Uh, well, let me back up. Uh, this this idea is also um, that Jesus is the sin offering all the way back in John chapter 1 again. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he identifies him. He says that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, uh, that phrase, Lamb of God, that is very much steeped in Old Testament sacrificial imagery. You know, so I think that, that that fits very nicely. So that when it says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, uh, that we recognize that that means that he came to be the one that atones for sin, that, that gets rid of sin, that, that handles you know, the problem uh, of sin for us. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here, notice that there is condemnation 
sin is condemned in the flesh. But in whose flesh? In Jesus' flesh. And only in Jesus' flesh. That there's no other salvation that's provided for us, um, provided for humanity, uh, outside of Jesus uh, giving his life for us. Um, there's a passage in, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 4, that says, There's no other name given under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And, you know, and in John, during the, uh, the Last Supper, when, when Jesus is talking with the disciples, uh, kind of after the Last Supper, um, you know, he, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. These are ideas that are really scandalous in our, our society today. You know, um, I've had lots of conversations with people, kind of this all roads lead to heaven type of an idea. Um, you know, uh, there are people who look at other religions and say, well, it, it's kind of like, you know, God's in the center and we're stationed around looking at him from different directions. And so we come up with different answers about what he's like and, and all of these things. And Jesus says, nope, it's me and only me. And we call that scandal the scandal of, of the particular uh, or the scandal of particularity. And uh, uh, it's particular uh, because there's only one way of salvation. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not available to all people. That's part of the scandal as well. Um, that this one way is for everyone who will believe. Um, so um, a Lutheran pastor writes this. He says, The scandal of particularity is that salvation for all was accomplished by God in one particular way and is available to all only through this particular one. The one time... Um, event. The one time event. I was like, I got a good typo there. Yeah, thank you. The one time event of the conviction of the only sinless person in the flesh actually condemned and executed sin itself. So, Christ comes in the flesh. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And he goes to the cross. And in the language of, of Colossians, he nails our sins to the cross as a public spectacle to atone for our sins. And then he rises from the dead. That, that's, that's the only way of salvation. And, and it's through faith in him. Um, by the way, whose sins did Jesus die for? Everyone. The sins of the world. So would it be right to say that somebody who's never heard of Jesus, that their sins are forgiven? Yes. Does that mean that they received that forgiveness? No. The reception comes by faith. If I bought you a present 
and said, here's a present, and you don't take it, did you receive the present? Sitting there, you know. Faith is faith is the thing that it was given, but you didn't receive it, because faith is that which takes hold of the promise. But if they didn't hear and they didn't get the gift, <laughs> and the first two chapters of Romans talk about this, that uh, you know that. You know, what about those who have not heard and, and just kind of this idea that the conscience then, which is rooted in God's law, you know, excuses and condemns us. You know, and we know what our consciences do to us. It certainly knows the law, knows right and wrong, and often tells us, you know, where we fall short of what God has called us to do and called us to be. So that our consciences are always kind of are often telling us, yeah, you're, you're not up to snuff. At least that's what my conscience does. So uh, he continues, he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So th this verse completes the, the move into the next section. It's acting as a hinge. Um, um, with that statement in order that. All the stuff that happened beforehand in the book, he's like, now we're going to get into you know, what God's purpose is in this. So God's purpose was to save us from our flesh by condemning sin in Jesus' flesh so that the law might be fulfilled, not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that the law is fulfilled as a gift. The law is, is, is fulfilled in what Jesus has done for us. That this is something that's received by faith. Um, and not something that, that we have kind of worked ourselves up to. So, um, so take note uh, that it says that this is done in us. One of the things that's important there is that he moved back to the plural. We talked about this, how at the end of chapter 7, wretched man that I am. And we spent some time talking about this uh, last week with the, um, there's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the sin of grace set you free. That that was a singular, um, you know, which is very different from what Paul usually does. He's coming back to the plural now because this is something that's done in us, not by us, um, as Jesus fulfills the law for everyone who will believe. It kind of teases it apart so you can see that this is for you individually. And then he brings it back together to say, you know, all of us together, that we are, are united in this faith. That's always part of what Paul writes. I don't know if you've noticed this, that there's always this sense of you have a unity that's in Jesus. You know, that, that he expects um, a, a love and a connection, uh, a fellowship of believers. We're not intended to walk this path of faith 
alone. Um, th this is one of the things that uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with with some of the digital stuff that uh, that we're doing right now, and I, you know the video services and stuff like that. Uh, I think that they serve a good purpose, but at the same time, it's not the same as being in church. You know, and, and you know, this is not something that we're intended to do just kind of on our own. The gathering is important too; it matters. You know, I. I I, I think that you can say it's not essential, but it's really important. You know, and, and to have that in, in our minds um, that uh, Jesus connects us as us. You know, and he's going to get into some of that uh, in the end of the book when he talks about spiritual gifts and talk about you know, being the body of Christ. You know, we're not intended to do this alone, even though... We are singular people. Uh, maybe another uh, helpful image, marriage. The two become one flesh, right? Two are united. That means that you agreed about everything and you never had a different thought from each other after that point, right? That's right. Yeah. Yes, oh yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me what I'm thinking, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the individuality remains even though there is a unity that, that's there, uh, that one flesh union. So um, one of the uh, early church fathers, Theodet, Theodoret of Cyrus, says, um, For although the law could not accomplish its purpose on account of the weakness of those to whom it was given, for they had a moral, mortal and passable nature, the only begotten word of God broke the power of sin by taking on human flesh and fulfilled all righteousness. So we're defined here as the ones who are not walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the spirit. Um, do any of you remember the song by Dire Straits, The Walk of Life? You do the walk, do the walk of life. That walk of life type of phrase, it, it's something that I think it's, it's pretty common in the English language, that your walk of life is just, it's what you do, right? Um, when it says that we walk according to the flesh or we walk according to the spirit, you will see some translations that translate that as live according to the flesh or live according to the spirit. And, and that's really the idea. You know, sometimes we talk about life as a journey, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's that kind of that motion through time type of an idea. And so as we, you know, walk through, whether, you know, it's in the flesh or in the spirit, it's describing how we live. And when it says that we're going to not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit, it's saying that we are going to live differently on account of Christ. We're going to live differently because of what Jesus has done for us. But there's no imperative verbs in chapter eight. <coughs> that, I think that's such an important idea here. What is happening in chapter eight is that 
the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is describing and defining what we are like as people who are redeemed, as people who walk by the Spirit. He's not commanding and saying, go do this. That's the law. You know, he's saying, this is what you're like. This is how your life is different now. So even in the Ten Commandments, you know, when you look at, at, at the way that the Hebrew Bible uh, often talks about the commandments, it doesn't say the commandments, it calls them the Ten Words. Because there's no imperative verb in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, please, I mean, check me out. The first part of the chapter, verse 1, God says, I am the Lord your God who called you out of Egypt. What's he telling them? I'm the God who saved you. He says, you will have no other gods. Not, don't have other gods. It's, you will have no other gods. It's simply a description of who he intends them to be. And, and all of the commandments are, are that way. He's basically saying, now that you're saved, now that you're redeemed, this is what you're like. Um, we have a hard time with that. And so, you know, we, we speak of them as commands. Um, it, it's, it's easier to, to think about them that way. But he, he's saying, that this, this is who you are because of what I've done for you. Um, <coughs> do any of you all have a problem with the mask that is just like irritates your throat? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, sorry about that. Um, this is what it looks like uh, when, when the flesh is no longer what controls us, even as we continue to live in it. Because we can't get rid of the flesh. We will continue to live in it. But if we're walking by the Spirit, we live differently. And we're no longer controlled by the, fra- the flesh, but controlled by the Spirit. So, uh, Paul does not separate the fulfillment of the law from the Christian lifestyle, but he does separate the purpose for fulfilling the law. It's not in order to gain his righteousness. It flows from the righteousness that he gives you freely as a gift because that's who you are. That's who you are. He has made you to be in Jesus. And I think that I think that that's an important distinction. Now, we still have the flesh in us, right? So do we sometimes need these reminders, you know, you know, hey knucklehead, that's not who you are? Yeah. So what do we do when we get those reminders? We repent and we remember that we are forgiven redeemed and restored so and we're at time hey kiddos and we finished all right let's pray father in heaven thank you for this time and uh we pray lord that you would bless us and help us to see ourselves as people who are led by your spirit redeemed in christ and we ask lord that you would help us to live our lives 
controlled by the Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.